I always caution clients, like it's very tempting that, oh, there's 10 people in this group. So each one is worth 10% and I'm going to make these charts and hit. And it was like, that's not kosher. Yeah. Like that's a big market research association, best practices, no, no. But clients are still, you can't stop them sometimes. But that's an example of why you need a balance of quantitative data so that you can provide meaningful and statistically significant numbers and charts and tables and that qualitative serves a different role. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, and I need your help. After three years of putting on this podcast, I feel like I'm trying to remain consistent while also not burning myself out. Even if you don't have a podcast, maybe you can relate. And this is sincerely something I look forward to producing every week. But candidly, it's a lot. It's certainly like a third, fourth, fifth full-time job. And putting out new episodes weekly means I have to have a steady stream of guests lined up. So I do a lot of communications, trying to figure out who would make a great guest, making the outreach, certainly doing a lot of follow-ups before getting them confirmed on the show. And then going into recording, which I try to get one to two episodes recorded a week on Wednesdays. Wednesdays is when I record because realistically, again, I have a full-time job running Restart and then some, of course, especially when you're an entrepreneur. So I wanted to keep my podcasting schedule streamlined. So I picked Wednesday as my day. And then once the episode is recorded, then weekly and often in real time in an attempt to be relevant and timely for you, I will record a podcast intro much like this one, sprinkle in some personal updates like this, for sure share some fresh industry news and cover any housekeeping changes in the industry, events coming up or things to just put on your radar. And once all of that is recorded, then I start pulling assets, headshots, logos, etc. and package all of my files up and send to my editor so that they can tie it all together which then brings me to episode launch day, which has been Monday, every single Monday for the last three years with a few hiccups aside. And then comes the other side of the coin, actually promoting the podcast and attracting listeners like you, where the cycle then repeats every five to seven days. And of course, I'm glazing over some of the more specifics. I could share how long it actually takes me to record my intros. I actually start by writing it down. So I have a script and I can stay on topic and I can mitigate the ums, which helps mitigate the editing on the back end. But that process can take me anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour to write, record, crop a little bit. I do some brief editing just to make sure it all sounds tight. And then I can submit it to my actual editor for final integration into the episode. So again, just on that front, these intros take me far longer than you actually listen to it. I mean, we're only a couple of minutes in, but this whole endeavor is going to take me more than that, right? So again, just trying to be candid and plea for some help. So please take a few moments and give me your pros and your cons of To Be Blunt. I'm trying to balance what will make this podcast the most valuable for you, the listener, without breaking my back trying to get all the little pieces done. 
specifically the fresh intro every week. I feel like a new week is constantly creeping up behind me. And with that, the creeping in of having to get the podcast ready to go, having to get all the additional little pieces of aspects and having to get all the little additional pieces of content and assets pulled together. And so I'm now trying to communicate some of that in an attempt to get your help. And so do you love it? Do you hate it? Would you miss the intro if it wasn't here? Or would you prefer we just jump straight into the interview? As much as I do this for me to educate myself and to build my network of resources up, it is absolutely for you. And if you are skipping through my words in the beginning and trying to jump straight to the interview, it's okay. Just let me know. And then I can work out what is the best course of action. I know that there will be varying opinions, but opinions from listeners like you is imperative to creating a feedback loop so I can make as informed decisions about the future of this podcast with you in mind. So please and thank you. Find me online. Send me an email. You can find my email in my Instagram profile, either under at the Shada Tarabi or at to be blunt pod. And again, it can be as specific or broad, as brief or lengthy as you want to share. But I need some guidance or I'm just going to start to make some changes and test things out, which in that case, thank you in advance for your patience and support. But really, thank you for pressing play and for joining me for another episode of Educating Ourselves and taking on cannabis packaged goods going to market, which now my SOS is a bit of a segue now that I think about it, because my guest today, Laura Fortis, is a consumer market research consultant, and she's been working and applying her skills in the cannabis industry now for a few years. And in the episode, we unpack the importance of capturing accurate consumer data and emphasize on accuracy, which Laura will clarify for us further today. And rather than it being overwhelming or daunting, Laura gives us a few tips on how to navigate consumer market research, whether you're a big brand or a small business. We talk about frequency, how often you should be collecting and doing consumer market research, what are the different types of ways you can go about it, qualitative versus quantitative. And regardless, if you aren't talking to your customers, if you aren't talking to general consumers and you're just making decisions, you could risk making a poor decision or worse, missing an opportunity that might be glaring you straight in the face. So on that note, I encourage you again to please reach out and engage with me. All the feedback really does help make sure that I'm making the right to be blunt show for you. Otherwise, why are we here? But I hope it's to learn, of course. Now, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Laura to the show. I'm Laura Fortas. I'm a market research consultant. I specialize in insights related to CPG and specifically in cannabis, which has a different texture to it than most consumer goods categories. I am definitely an accidental cannabis expert. I'm not a big cannabis consumer even to this day, but I went basically from 1985 to 2017 without even trying it. So, I mean, I'm definitely someone who comes at it from a market research point of view. I've always been inquisitive and fallen into categories where there's stigma or controversy or a lack of research sophistication. Procter and Gamble don't need more people like me necessarily. It's, it's, I believe, small, medium and, and large companies that have stigmatized or controversial products that they need to try. And uh, that's what I really love. So I've worked for some creative dating apps, learned some things, seen some things I can't unsee over some of the projects that I've taken on. But I love what I do and I love figuring out ways to get answers to questions, problem solving 
and answers to questions really drive my passion, continual curiosity. I fell into cannabis in late 2018, or maybe it was early 2019. I was recommended for a project that involved CBD, and I was doing a few CBD products projects. When they all ended up having cannabis-related businesses as well, so all of a sudden, by the time the pandemic came around, I realized that most of my income was contingent upon, ironically, cannabis or charter schools. Like all of a sudden, my world had narrowed and the traditional consumer packaged goods and financial services had sort of dissipated. And I had done a lot of work with bud tenders, bud tender focus groups, bud tender interviews, which makes anyone who knows me just laugh to this day because I'm, that's not where I saw myself. I saw myself as maybe a pediatrician, a lobbyist in Washington. I've done some creative things like I was an intern for a congressman. I was a celebrity personal assistant to Tori Spelling in the 90s during grad school. Like I've done some creative jobs, but not as rewarding and interesting as product testing for cannabis. I am so eager to dive into more of your story, your expertise. I mean, thank you for the introduction again. I think it's super important for me and my listeners to hear it from your perspective, because I think it's important to paint a picture of how we all got here. And it's not that working in the cannabis industry, to your point, means that you've always consumed cannabis or still consume cannabis. I just was reading something about a cannabis executive and he's like, I don't consume THC, but I love CBD. I love these other cannabinoids. And so I think it's just, again, a really great way for us to see ourselves in the conversation. So I appreciate you sharing and kicking us off with that background and history. Now, I think the best place to kind of dive in is really helping us define and understand from your perspective, what is market research? Like, what does that entail? What is the, I guess, like protocol? What is the practice of that? And what is the outcome of doing market research? Sure. So market research is nuanced. So oftentimes some people think of market research, they think of some statistics they read, which may have been a syndicated study, wherever it was. But market research is divided in sort of almost quadrants. There's qualitative and quantitative research. So usually market research people specialize in either quantitative, which is the online surveys, charts, tables, that kind of analysis, or they do qualitative, which is focus groups, in-depth interviews, ethnographies. And I'm very fortunate because I am what's called methodologically agnostic. What, how we achieve the goal doesn't matter to me. I've been in market research since 1996. So what is that? Like over 25 years? That's right. Wow, that makes me feel really old. That's has it changed? Like, have the it ways qualitative to quantitative? Like, has it changed how you go about it? Obviously, technology introducing maybe the way you would perform a survey or communicate with sure. a customer. But well, one of my first jobs was because there was no online surveys really going on. They would send us, and granted, I was in my twenties then, but I went to do what's called intercepts, which are taking doing surveys with people who are in Chicago on a booze cruise or over in Wrigley Field and seeing their reaction to a, a liquor promotion that was in the sky. Oh, wow. So nowadays you would do that completely differently. They wouldn't spend the money to send someone from Los Angeles to Chicago to intercept people on a booze cruise or <laughs> like, I don't think so. Maybe they would. 
But another thing that's changed dramatically is market research used to be about finding answers, but now it's moved to being where we offer more conclusions and recommendations. And that's very different than old school, late 1990s, early 2000s research, where it was just the facts, ma'am. And now we take more of a part in understanding the business and the dynamics of the business. Because I can do both, I usually do a combination of qualitative and quantitative projects for my clients. Sometimes it's one or the other, depending on their needs. But then besides there being qualitative and quantitative, there's primary and secondary data. And in an industry like cannabis, the primary reliance when people say like, oh yeah, we do market research, is quantitative data from what's called POS, point of sale data. So headsets and other companies that provide point of sale data. And that tends to be what cannabis companies consider their checklist of they've done market research. I personally think it's short-sighted. It's not multidimensional. One of the issues I have with it is that because of the laws governing how people can technically not buy cannabis for other people, point of sale companies tend to conflate purchase with usage. But anecdotally, everyone knows people buy for other people. People are seeing, like, I don't know anyone who's never purchased something for someone else or been the recipient of someone for someone else. So I call these sort of the invisible shoppers, the customers you don't even know you have because there's you're going to get for your Nana who just had knee replacement surgery and is 70. You're going to get the cannabis for her. You're not going to, Nana's not going into the dispensary right. on her crutches to get her product. Not going to happen. But there are, there are people who do that. There's also just basic things like, you don't even know me, but if I went into a, a liquor store and I bought a keg, you probably assume that I am not going to drink that keg by myself. Well, same with buying large amounts of cannabis. Oftentimes you're doing it to share with others. You're buying for others. It's very common for the, the user, whether they be a kid or an elderly person or a spouse, to not be the actual purchaser. But in a sophisticated industry like consumer packaged goods, you're not going to say like, wow, all these middle-aged moms in the suburbs are buying copious amounts of Captain Crunch. No, you're going to like assume, you're going to draw conclusions that right, they're buying the it for someone in their household. And my contention is that there's a lot more of that going on in cannabis. And the reason that's a problem is that it overestimates how much a person is actually consuming because it doesn't report what they're buying for other people. And it underestimates from a societal point of view how many people are consuming. They're just not going through personally buying it in a legal licensed dispensary on point of sales. So I would contend that most retail data has to be evaluated with that in mind and used carefully. And that's kind of the key thing with any tool, including research. I've had companies say like, oh, well, we put a survey out to our Instagram file following and this is what they said. Well, that's what's called a self-selected sample. The only people that are going to answer that are already in, in your, your wheelhouse right. and likely predisposed to liking you, which is why they're in your circle. So that's when I teach market research for entrepreneurs and startups. That's a pretty common hazard people fall into is trying to take shortcuts, understandably. No one budgets for market research. I mean, people just assume that's out of their access and then they come to have a question and they need it, but they try to shortcut it, which can be even more dangerous than not having any research at all because you make conclusions based on faulty data or misconstrued data. 
everything you're saying, I'm tracking and I find it so fascinating because you're right. I don't think a lot of businesses think that deeply about it. And I'll use myself as the example. I love to fall on the sword. I mean, you just painted us to a T. It's I'm going to try to release a new product. Where do I ask? I'm going to ask my Instagram followers and then they're going to vote. And then I'm going to make a decision based off of what this quote unquote research group has decided. But obviously you highlighted it. They're already our fans. Maybe it's not as threatening if it's a new flavor. Maybe you want to ask the people who already like your products and then that makes sense. But obviously bringing it out bigger than that, you don't want to just be isolated into your echo chamber of people who are already your fans and already saying nice things. So maybe Uh let's back up. Maybe this is a dumb question, but for clarification, why? Like why market research? You mentioned in part of your intro about Procter & Gamble obviously being a larger size company and this application being a little bit more better suited to smaller brands. Is there a reason why smaller independent businesses could benefit more or less? Or is it just because they have the resources so it's more part of their business model and then the smaller businesses are not even thinking of market research? Like again, me, I think about it, but it's obviously overwhelming to start to reconcile, well, who do I ask and where do I yeah. ask? Where do how do start? I get their permission? And and ultimately, like, what is the goal for me? Why am I doing this? So I'd love to hear from you working with sure. working in this industry and working specifically with cannabis operators for the last couple of years. Why are cannabis operators coming to you and, and why should they come to you or just start looking at market research more intentionally? Sure. That's a really good question. The reason that I think that actually small and medium-sized companies have the most to benefit from market research is they're taking a big risk. We're talking about people who might be quitting their day job or spending their life savings on something in order to make it happen. And when you're making big decisions like that, going on a hunch or a gut feeling or anecdotal evidence is just generally not a good idea. You're going to end up beating yourself up. And usually in small companies, I find there's partners, whether they be spouses or friends or whatever the relationship is. And if you don't have consumer-based data and you're not in agreement, then someone's going to quote whinge. And then if that win doesn't result in the profitability that you'd hoped, it's going to be like, well, point fingers at the from the partner and resentment. So it can really toxify relationships. Besides the fact that now you're in a worse financial situation that had you taken a beat and and redirected some of the money towards market research so that you could make conclusions. Because oftentimes what you think is your target audience is not necessarily your optimal target audience. You may have multiple target audience. As an example, I did some work for someone who had a vacuum sealed jar for can of sewers, where that was what it was designed for, who presumably would be more interested in the right dampness of their wheat. Preservation of it, right? Yeah, sounds logical. Yeah, like wouldn't they care more? But when we got into the fielding of this project, it became very clear to me very soon that one of the primary advantages of the product, which was the vacuum seal, indirectly provides smell proofness. And the idea of keeping your kids from smelling that there's wheat in the house is a much more compelling, unique selling proposition than targeting connoisseurs who, over the years, they everyone's worked out their situation with terpene shields or 
whether it's Boost or Bovida or whatever, they're right. using something or a mason jar, whatever. But parents who want to dabble in weed but don't want their kids to know there's weed in the house, there is a lot more of them than there are canisores who haven't solved that problem. So we were able to tell this person who it just hadn't even occurred to them. But once we saw what were the compelling features of the product being tested, we could see that. And he was able to shape some of his marketing to go after a different target audience. Not that there, not, it, it just, there isn't usually a target audience. There's multiple target audiences and there's ones that are more optimal in terms of their ROI than others. Well, like you said too, it's uncovering information and leveraging the data to help you make informed decisions. And yes. yes, I can again relate as a small business owner who owns a cannabis brand with her sisters. It's a lot of, I like this, or I think that will work. And then trying to maybe ask again, the circle of influence, whether it's Instagram followers, mm. customers who might be in the store in that very given moment or our retail staff. And it's not to say not to, at least I think yeah. those are like, you should ask people, you shouldn't just yeah. think that your decision is the right decision. But obviously your conversation, the way you're approaching it is like, how do you go beyond that? How do you do something mm -hmm. that's a little bit more substantiated to actually make those informed decisions? So now I want to go back. You mentioned some of the work you're doing is with bud tenders. I'm really curious how that works. What is the benefit? Obviously, there's consumer data and then there's like team internal data. And so I'm imagining talking to the bud tenders is twofold. One, because in a regulated adult use market model, most likely that dispensary, those bud tenders are selling the house brand or brands, and then they're also selling external brands. And so you're trying to get information on what are customers buying as well as what's working internally versus then maybe me as the brand trying to decide, oh, what flavor gummy do I launch next? Or, oh, mm -hmm. what strain is going to entice customers that I should introduce to drive sales and drive business? So from a bartender perspective, what has that been like to work with them? And kind of what are some of the challenges or problems that you're trying to solve by working with them through some of this exercise? Yeah. Talking to bun tenders is always challenging in terms of it's staying focused on where can I get the most value from this bud tender. So for instance, we did a project where we were trying an infused pre-will product, let's say. And do I ask what they personally like? Do I ask what they think their customers would like? Do I ask what they think they're most likely to feel comfortable recommending? Like, what perspective do I have? What hat are they wearing? And sometimes it's, what would a bud tender, as a bud tender, what would you feel most confident recommending of these? Now, then you get into nuances like confident recommending because it's new and different or confident and recommending because I think it should be part of their regular repertoire. So it gets complicated <laughs> with bud tenders, but the primary gateway for recommendations of what's new, of what's working, sometimes people ask them what they like, which I think is kind of misguided because that presumes that you have the same taste as said bud tender, and you probably do not. So I like it better when people say like, what would be right for me? I'm trying to achieve this mood or mind state or body state. And this is my typical form factor that I use. And then you're going to get some bud tenders that are just going to try to sell you the most potent weed at the lowest price. But it's interesting for me to do mystery shopping because I can go in and very easily plausibly be that but that could be my first time into a shop. And it's interesting to see 
what they ask and what gets presumed. People make assumptions all the time. So it takes a lot of bud tender training to be objective and understand like, how are you going to do right by this consumer? And it is a bummer that sometimes that's driven by the employee incentives. So I really have a lot of respect for the dispensaries where they don't, they don't gamify it or make it commission-based type of thing. I also am a pragmatic person. And so I understand why it happens and through the different brands and platforms in which you can get rewarded. But getting bud tender opinion is really, I find to be very important. Sometimes it's the complete opposite of the consumer opinion on things. So it depends. If, are we in product innovation or are we in marketing? What phase of the process are we in? And then we use the bud tender feedback accordingly. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. I guess in your expert recommendation, how often should brands be doing market research? And obviously there's different layers to that, to this whole conversation, right? It's from product development. Maybe you're wanting a different subset to now I'm actually contemplating putting the product on the floor or introducing a product to my consumers. Is this something that should be done, I guess, trigger-based? Like I'm launching a product, so we're going to do research based on this new product. Or is it quarterly? Hey, every quarter we should be doing secret shopping. Like I love that suggestion. Obviously, it's apparent that it's done in other industries, but I don't Mm -hmm. think a lot of people in our industry actually employ it. And so it's an interesting thought to kind of get your brain to start noodling around because I think some of these things are certainly easier than others. Like it's easy for me to maybe say, hey, best friend who's maybe not come in the shop in a while, go shop and I'll give you a $50 gift card or I'll reimburse you. And I just want to hear how what questions were asked by my team Mm -hmm. and what was the experience like. 
versus something where I might need to facilitate hiring a you or setting up a survey and then like going through that data. Like it, it seems exciting. It's hard to, yeah, it's, it's hard lot. to know. I'm a little bit different in that okay. I'm my own agency. I have one full time partner and uh, part time people that I employ as needed, but I don't have the overhead of like, 50 millennials wanting unlimited espresso and a pool table in the lobby. Like I, my, lo- my overhead's pretty, pretty low. Yeah. And I'm short, but also my dad was a CPA and he always drilled into me, like, is this cost justified? So I treat my client's money as if it's my money. Would I spend it that way? So you don't get a lot of the frivolous things like. It would be easy for me to say like, oh, yeah, you should be doing research systematically and you should test mm. everything. But that's not practical. No one has that kind of resources. You know, that, yeah, that, that, those kind of resources. So I'm very strategic and I help clients understand what can you, what is a must do? What is a nice to do? What is it a one day do kind of thing? And I tend to be very, I love dim sum. Like I tend to be like kind of dim sum in my approach. Like you can have this, you can have that line it with that. We can start with this. If you're still hungry, we can get this as opposed to coming up with this tomb or market research recommendations. In the product innovation phase, that tends to be where a lot of people come specifically to see me because I'm good at coming up with creative solutions for getting product in the, the hands of bud tenders and consumers. Typically, companies will use friends and family employees. So you might have a big company and it's like, oh, what research did you do? Like, oh, 14 of our employees volunteered to try this new gummy. Well, talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars decision based on 14 voluntary employees, like that just seems a very short-sighted savings to me. So I'm good at coming up with like, well, what are the most outside the box way that we can make this happen legally and safely? Because it isn't like a granola bar. I can't invite you to like a facility and have you try three bites of granola bars. You go on your merry way. I've got to arrange transportation there and back. I've got to make sure it's being done in a place that's legal to be conducting or to be smoking versus doing edibles. So I had a project that was we were going to grind and roll weed and also try three different joints. And it's like, well, I can't invite you to my, my focus facility or to my home to do that. Like I carry a lot of insurance, but I don't want it to be used <laughs> on because I did something really misguided. So I rented an RV that was zoned as a domicile and we took it to people's homes and gave them the choice of, you know, we could go in their home or we could do it in the RV where they had privacy and away from their kids, away from creating smoke and that environment. And it worked. There are things like you can't be on a public street. So we had to be in, there are a lot of criteria you have to meet. Like in Denver, if you do testing, if you're on like a cannabis tour bus, you have to move every 25 minutes. Like there's different rules that apply to cannabis that would never right. be an issue with another controlled, with another substance. So my specialty is how do we get regular consumers who are in your target audience who don't know it's your brand to try out your product? And, and I've used RVs, tour buses, cannabis lounges, 
like I've had to get very creative mm. in, in conducting research in alternative settings because none of the focus facilities can accommodate what I try to do. No, it makes sense. Obviously, just par for the course of what the industry kind of puts cannabis operators through just when it comes to basic marketing and advertising and banking. But it does not surprise me, although I didn't know those nuanced details around taking market research and trying to apply it because it is, it's sensitive. It's like you want someone to try something, but where do you legally have them try it? How do you get them to sign a waiver or confirm or agree that they want to do it? And Mm -hmm. so I guess a follow-up question to that is maybe twofold. One, what is a good sample size and does the sample size vary? And then two, obviously sometimes you're testing and you just articulated Sometimes you're doing these research groups and you obviously want maybe people who are consumers, but they're not maybe outright a consumer of this brand, this product. So you're trying to create some mystery. Are you more doing research with people who are currently consumers? Or like to me, it'd be interesting to try to dissect and understand the people who are kind of curious and like, where do you find those people? And I feel like that's a much higher hurdle or challenge where it's, the person isn't hanging out at a dispensary. They're not going yeah. to the rock show or maybe they are. You know what I mean? Like, how do you, yeah. they're the grocery store, they're in the drink aisle, but they're not in the alcohol aisle. It's like, yeah. hey, you look like you might be interested. Have you tried cannabis? You haven't <laughs> yet. Would you like to try cannabis in a safe environment? Like, yeah. so, so what it's is the good sample size? And then how do you kind of find these people legally to participate, whether they're current consumers, which maybe is a little bit easier in my opinion or my yeah. ass- ass- assumption? Or the can of curious, like, where do you find those people? Well, I have never done any work with can of curious who I don't personally know because it okay. is, there is risk incumbent upon it. That being said, I actually have a project coming up uh, and a lot of my initial work in cannabis was about the can of curious, about people who were on the fence and what was it going to take to pull the lever to get them to try a substance that if they grew up like me in the Reagan era and just say no, that's still that, that playing in your head. head. Yep. Yeah. It's still playing in your head, even though intellectually I have cannabis around just as I would alcohol for people, for myself, for people who visit, whatever. It still plays in your head. So I actually am coming up with a means. I'm not one of those people who's like the power of the plant's going to change the world. It's the panacea for our, all the world's ills. Like I come at at it and people should be able to make an informed choice about what they consume, especially when it has a potential therapeutic benefit to it. So I am working with a company specifically, edibles tends to be the way two thirds or more of of can of curious come into the category of how can we test out edibles that are low dose edibles so that someone's experience isn't one of the iconic, typical, took too many edibles, will never try cannabis again because it was such a nightmare. Like someone's couch for three days. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. And I'm guilty. I did it with that. I, oh, for I sure. did it. I consumed some edibles and I thought, well, I'm heavier than people. I'm going to sleep. And I took way too much. And I got up the next day. I could not put my legs in my underwear. I had to cancel all my meetings, go commando for like 24 hours. Like I could not navigate my arms and legs into basic clothing. So, and I should have known better, but I didn't. And so I don't want people to extrapolate from having a bad experience with inedibles because they took too much. That's 
all that the cannabis has to offer. So I am trying to help companies come up with ways to look at microdosing and low dose and alternative cannabinoids that could help people feel like they could make a safe entree into the market without worrying about getting the munchies or being exhausted. Because there are so many other things out there that could be stimulate creativity or productivity or like lots of things. But that's not how I grew up was Tietjen Chong and the Scooby Mystery Mobile and it never occurred to me that cannabis could actually be work affirming and work enhancing until I got further into it. And that's where I think there's a lot of opportunity for the can of curious is to come in a way that go low dose, go slow and try different strains that result or that result in different effects mm-hmm. than the typical, like what we did at college. It is an interesting reality I'm kind of experiencing right now in this conversation where out of everything that exists and to your experience coming from traditional CPG, it's like, hey, I'm, I make a cheesy chip brand. Try my cheesy chip brand. Let me know if you like it. Is it puffy? Is it cheesy? Is it crunchy? Like, what's your feedback? It's not going to make you feel anything. Maybe you're lactose intolerant, so you're not a part of the study group. Alcohol, I could see, is obviously a little bit more akin where you can sample it, you can taste it, but you're not going to have an effect from a sip or two. Maybe if it's a liquor brand, you're taking a shot, or maybe the goal is to see how you feel on a can of a new seltzer. Yeah. But cannabis is such a like, disruption in the market for a multiple angle approach. But this is one of those which even personally, when we are trying our own products, testing things internally, I can't try three of my gummies in a day. I won't have a clear slate no. or plate to make a, a good decision off of. And so even when we're doing internal testing and personal testing, even for some of our videos, we started making a bunch of videos on our YouTube which is me taking my edibles and I will eat one on camera and then I will check in 30 minutes, I'll check in an hour. And it's Mm -hmm. me just going through the journey of what is 10 milligrams going to do to me? What is five milligrams? What Mm -hmm. is 20 milligrams? And my husband was like, nobody wants to watch that. And I was like, I'm going to do it anyways. And people love it. They're like, oh, I didn't know how this was going to make me feel. So I am happy to see you go through the experience. It gives me some sort of barometer to what the effect might be. But it's something that I can only do one video a day because I can't have multiple products in my yeah. body to have clear mindedness. And so it's just making me think of the opportunity and the complexities, both from a compliance perspective of how, when offer this, these research opportunities to the actual outcome of that you're trying to get. And so depending on, yeah, who your research group is, what your product is, obviously, yeah, like a joint, you can puff once or twice and yeah. you'll feel high, but it'll dissipate much quicker than someone who's like, hey, try this 20 milligram gummy or whatever it is and Mm -hmm. like, see you later. And you can't get the the onset and offset. It's very hard with gummies. Like, what are you going to do? Keep someone for four and a half hours? Right. Exactly. practical. Like those considerations. We do that. It's called an, the acronym is called IHUT. That stands for in-home use test. Okay. And so I've done one of those with several edibles brands where, we get the product. Usually, I usually have to penny up. Like you can't like give yeah. stuff away. Yeah. So it's like they go in and they give their 11 cents and they get their samples. And then we try it over a course of five days a week, whatever it is. And they're journaling and giving feedback. Maybe. Yeah. Like usually I'll do, even though it'd be nice if it was like, 
a diary, yes. what we do is we create like a survey that's basically tracks mm. salient questions. And then sometimes like I'll do a get together, like a focus group virtually at the end or in-depth interview virtually at the end. I never would have them like come to a place for something like that. And, and it's been really interesting. I happen to think there are pros and cons to focus groups versus in-depth interviews versus the surveys. People tend to just be more like they don't enjoy it. Right. So in-depth. Maybe it's not as accurate either. Yeah. And so like, what's the trade-off? You get precision versus if people aren't engaged, then how valid is it? Right. Then what's the point um, of even doing yes. the exercise? Yeah. So sometimes like I have a project coming up where that's really important and we're going to do, we're going to collect the data and then take a look at the data before the in-depth interview so that we can ask the why questions and the more nuanced questions of the reasons for the answers that way. Whereas in a focus group setting, it's more collective and you do have group bias and you have usually some people who are more active than others. And, but oftentimes it's a fun way to get that group dynamic. So like for me, for, or my feeling is that oftentimes with stigmatized or controversial subjects, it's better to do it as in-depth interviews than as focus groups because people tend to be more forthcoming if there's no, yes, yeah. like, oh, so-and-so might go to the same grocery stores, me or know someone or just, it isn't like, like the phenomenon of being on an airplane where people will share things they'd never share because they know unequivocally they're never going to see you again. In a focus group, there's more of a like, you might be my kid's tri- teacher or I'm yeah. going to run into you. Yeah. So it isn't quite devoid of that. So that's why for, if there's any, anything controversial, I'll move it to an in-depth interview or do something multifaceted, like a proposal I have coming up where we'll do focus groups and we're going to try certain flavors of a product and then we're going to send them home to do an eye hut with some additional flavors because they have a big, they have a lot of flavors. So we couldn't do it all in one uh, group. So we'll have an augment to that and then do some in-depth interviews to kind of get gather the information and the whys behind it. Because it's usually not just data, like there isn't, we're not talking about hundreds of people. So to get focused on the charts and tables would be misleading. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a qualitative exercise. Going back to some of these different, I guess, ways that you're approaching it, whether you're doing a survey, whether you're doing an interview, whether you're doing a focus group, is there, because also earlier you brought up just using data that's coming from your point of sale. Obviously, there's maybe volume because you're getting uh-huh. a certain amount of transactions happening. And so there's something that's substantial because it's, hey, oh, yeah. this is my sales like over 30 days or over six months or over oh, a year. totally crucial. What are the kind of like, like how many people and maybe obviously ranges, but like what to you then is a good amount of people to say, okay, well, we feel comfortable. We can assess this data after a hundred surveys being filled out or is it like a thousand surveys being filled out? It depends what the universe is. So there's like complex variables to say how much it is, but usually it's based on what the potential universe of your customers are. If your universe is people who live in Farmington, Massachusetts and are over 21 and are experiencing pain, you have to get a lot fewer surveys completed than if you're selling toilet paper as a national brand. So it, it does correlate somewhat to that. 
Also, it depends if the information is directional or otherwise. Qualitative and quantitative have pros and cons to that. But your the likelihood, I can't, I've never done a product testing on a quantitative level for cannabis the way I would be able to do for a regular product. It's just cost prohibitive. So I always caution clients, like it's very tempting that, oh, there's 10 people in this group. So each one is worth 10% and I'm going to make these charts and hit. And it was like, that's not right. kosher. Yeah. Like I think that's a big market research association, best practices. No. But clients are still, it's like, you can't stop them sometimes. But that's an example of why you need a balance of quantitative data so that you can provide meaningful and statistically significant numbers and charts and tables and that qualitative serves a different role. Yeah, it's not Sometimes like, people want both. and Of course. But sometimes it's just not practical. Well, also Especially too, like, for B2B. So many, yeah. B2B, it, like all, almost all B2B that I do is in-depth interview format because finding enough of the people in that particular role who are purchasers, decision makers of cannabis software at their dispensary, like that would be prohibitive to get that many people in a quantitative context. That's like more qualitative. So it's not a science. It's somewhat of an art based on experience. Like, okay, I, I did that. I did that in 2004 and that didn't work out well. So I'm not doing that again. Or, and I did that in 2017 and this is how it turned out. So a lot of my work is based on experience of what has worked or not worked in the past. And based on the postmortem of that, I file that in my brain as I'm thinking about what to recommend. No, it makes sense. For all the things that we've talked about, obviously, there's a lot of different dynamics at play when you're trying to get research done in our industry. And so, yeah, it's not that there's so much a magic number. It's just, yeah, maybe don't ask your three friends. Maybe it's not a hundred people in your local community, but trying to find a good middle ground of, like you said, depending on what your outcome or your goal is, that's really what's influencing how you should approach it. Kind of final question or almost final question. I am learning a lot. So thank you for all of this. My brain is literally like, oh, this is all good information. But I want to understand because I just feel like it's fair to ask. Maybe the answer is not as surprising as I would want it to be. But from doing research across the United States with different brands, CBD to THC, are there any trends? Like, are there similarities when you're doing these focus groups? Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, it's different brands, different products, different people, different geographic areas. But I'm finding a lot of like consistent trends, especially when you're looking maybe at like the headset data side of things like flower consistently is people are going to purchase flower time and time again. You obviously highlighted two thirds of new people coming into the marketplace are more inclined to buy edibles. Like, is there any either way profound or yep, it's the same no matter where I go, no matter what I ask, we're realizing that people are fundamentally asking the same questions or having the same issues. And I'll tee it up maybe for us. It's hard as a cannabis brand because I know while a lot of people use it recreationally, a lot of people, myself included, use it medicinally. Of course, I'm in pain. I'm trading my opioid for cannabis, but I legally can't say that. I legally cannot say, you're in pain. Come to me. You need help sleeping. Come to me. And yet the conversations I'm having every day in my shop are man, I just had surgery or I cannot sleep. I'm looking for something to help me or I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety. And so to me, the reason why we're consuming as a a collective group is pretty basic. It's pretty consistent. 
we're all dealing with something uncomfortable and we want to feel less uncomfortable. But what's the form Mm. factor? What's the dose? How do I get it? Where do I go? Am I more comfortable having my neighbor or my best friend shop for me versus me going into the dispensary? Like, obviously, those are interesting nuances. So Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you're finding a lot of it is common, similar, redundant, or if there's some profound... You mean between states? like Yeah, between states. Yeah, between like what you're observing happening, again, from like a data perspective, the general data perspective. I think there's a lot of state-by-state variants. So if you look at, let's say you look at three northeastern states, you look at Maine, you look at Massachusetts, and New Jersey. Well, New Jersey, like most people in Maine, Massachusetts, if, if you look at their motivations for trying cannabis, it's pain management, avoiding opioids and all that stuff. You look at New Jersey, they're much more likely to come in via comfort, via smoking, you know, combustibles. And not that they don't give a shit about opioids, but it's they not their don't driver. Seem, yeah. Yeah. They don't seem to care that much. And I was like, why? What, what the hell is the matter with people from New Jersey? Is this like Jersey Shore phenomenon, like a real thing? But it turns out New Jersey's a mecca of pharmaceutical companies. So most people in New Jersey, don't have the stigma of pharmaceutical and the are not motivated right. by that. Whereas you look in Maine, like if you juxtapose the data for Massachusetts consumers and canicurious with Maine, sorry, the, between Maine and New Jersey, they're like night and day. And that's another Same. market research peeve I have about reporting national data. If I reported them together, it's kind of diluted. So I really encourage people to look at state-specific data because at least based on what I perceive and see, there's a lot of variation. No, that's super helpful and super insightful. Again, I don't expect anything and I don't think anything shocks me at this point either. It's more just trying to do the research and learn from experts and making sense of what information is out there. And Mm -hmm. to me, the best way to do that is the one-to-one approach working up to what you do, where you're trying to get more of a group opinion to to get some subset of information. But it's just having that one-on-one conversation, which is why I think the dispensary side of things is so interesting for our industry, right? It's like a force. We have to shop that way. It's obviously changing. E-commerce on the hemp side is available. You're seeing direct-to-consumer in markets like California, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that dispensary frontline where I have an opportunity to talk to a customer And so I'm not always in my retail dispensary, but when I am, I take that opportunity to ask questions. So whereas my bud tender might not always be as inquisitive as I am, I'm asking customers, hey, when you're buying the five milligram, do you eat the whole thing? Do you eat half of it? Do you eat multiple a day? Like I want to hear from them how that person is using it, not necessarily to justify anything because I recognize that it's just maybe one person in a scheme of multiple Uh opinions and experiences, but like to me, I guess I'm distilling it down. Like if you're not talking to your customers, if you're not talking to your community, yeah, that's, like you're missing out. Like, you yeah, that's customer service 101. Yeah, getting you that should feedback. be talking to people. One thing though that I find to be an occupational hazard and I can see or I'm extrapolating that that might be a little bit for you too is yeah, I'm highly curious. Yes. So like I have a million questions I want to ask. However, over time, I kind of trained myself like, if I knew the answer to this, is there something actionable I can do with it? 
Exactly. Or am I just collecting it because it sounds like, like I should know it, but yeah. So I tend to be a bit of a contrarian when it comes to question asking, making sure that there's like a justifiable reason. Like a purpose for what you're actually going to do. It's like real estate, like use it sparingly. Mm, So for instance, like I have a gripe with the household income question because, well, I have a lot of issues with the household income question. I mean, even if people are truthful, let's assume they're truthful. $100,000 in Palo Alto supporting a family of four, you're you're practically like under the poverty line. $100,000 single woman in Nebraska, you're living your best life. So if you don't know where you are, the average cost of living, how many people are supported by the household, how many people are contributing to the house. Like, like there's so many things you would have to ask to make the household income question applicable, especially as regard to a discretionary purchase like cannabis, that it just kills me when clients insist on that. It's just a waste. It's just a waste of a question. No, I think you bring up a really fair point of not just asking the question, but what is the answer going to actually empower mm-hmm. you with the decision? And so I think that's a really great place for us to kind of leave it and resonate on all the great things that you shared. Well, I know that I you. have some homework to do, but I love ending my episodes on a high note. And so uh-huh. I'll kind of leave that up to you to share whether it's something business related, market related, research related, just like, what are you looking forward to? What's something that's coming down the pipeline that you're excited about? Well, I really am looking forward to finding ways to do larger scale product testing in cannabis. And as of now, I'm able to do that more in California than I am here in Colorado, just with logistics and laws and yeah. lounges and Rules. So I have some projects that, that I'm excited to see come to fruition because I really pride myself on outside the box problem solving. And I probably shouldn't have the re- revealed some of the mechanisms that I've done. You might want to edit that out. Like, I don't want people to like be like, Oh, I'll just go and do that myself. Like, yeah, of course. I kind of realized I kind of gave away some of the secret sauce. But the fact is that I like finding ways to solve challenges. And, and I've done some crazy shit in my over 25 years of market research to solve those challenges. And that's what really keeps me excited. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtrabi. 
Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.